0: As workers are being replaced by machines, we would expect the remaining workers to appear to be producing ever more and ever more quickly. And we just don't see that. The real problem that we face is not an acceleration of technology, but a deceleration of economic growth.
1: This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars, and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen.
2: And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today in our show is Aaron Beneneff, an economic historian and social theorist who works in Berlin at the moment and who wrote a
1: fantastic book about the future of work. And the book attacks a dominant belief system. A belief system that is at the core of our economic discourse and our economic thinking. It is shared by Silicon Valley titans, by techno-futurists, by politicians from all sides of the political spectrum that robots are taking our jobs and that workers are replaced by machines.
2: And he not only illustrates that we are wrong when we think this, he also shows that it's not robotization and automation that threaten our work, our economies, our societies. It is something completely different. Let's go. Three, two, one, zero. Aaron uh, Benenev, thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you so much for having me. For somebody who uh, has been uh, full time uh, studying work and uh, automation, um, what kind of a year has it been?
0: You know, for me, it's been an interesting year. I moved across halfway across the world, I guess, from Chicago to Berlin in the middle of a pandemic. And so um, that was a pretty harrowing and strange experience to uh, arrive in a new city when everything was sort of partially shut down. But um, for me personally, it's been uh, not as bad as for many others. I don't have any children who I've had to take over childcare for suddenly in the midst of a pandemic. And Zoom has actually allowed me to, in many ways, stay in touch with a lot of people. And have like visual camera contact with them who I might have otherwise had trouble staying in touch with. So for me personally, it's been uh, not so bad, but I recognize that I'm a very lucky person in that regard.
1: We are going to talk about your book. You study the history of unemployment and global labor markets and recently published Automation and the Future of Work. From a personal perspective, where did your fascination with labor market dynamics and technological change originate?
0: Mm. Well, um, that's an interesting question. So, when I was younger, when I was in high school, um, my father actually worked in—he had been working in the field of automation. He was a researcher, and he left that behind to um, work in the private sector. Because in the late '90s, it was really the big initial tech boom. And people were realizing that it wasn't really going to be automation that changed the world at that time, at least. It was going to be the internet and all of these possibilities of connectivity. So it was really out of um, experiences working with my father every summer at different startup companies in the late 90s that gave me the sense that the world of work or the transformations of work and technology that were taking place at that time were just a lot weirder and less kind of utopian than was being talked about then. And I, and that sort of propelled me into this study, this real interest in the relationship between technology and work and white collar work and kind of computer work and so on. So that was a big initial interest of mine. Uh, and then for a long time, I became interested really in The question of global unemployment really disconnected from the technology question. I was just trying to understand why there's so many people in the world who need to work and have trouble finding jobs. And that's really what I did my dissertation on. Um, And right as I was finishing, it was this time of kind of incredible excitement about technology and automation and how um, new technologies like AI, machine learning, and advanced industrial robotics were going to transform work and I felt like I had a pretty good background to be able to evaluate those claims and come to a kind of more realistic conclusion about what was going on
1: and to to elaborate a little bit more on that realistic conclusion, your book and also what you study is a reply and a critique on what you describe as the automation discourse um can you maybe first explain what this discourse actually entails what does it what does it what are its propositions and Maybe also, who are its proponents?
0: Mm. Well, I think most broadly understood, the automation discourse is something that everyone listening, I'm sure, has encountered, whether on television or in popular magazines or newspapers. It's just the idea that we live in an age of brilliant technological changes, that these are kind of opening up a possibility already for a world with a lot less drudgery, a lot less unpleasant work. Um, but contained within that kind of speculation about this positive overcoming of work is a kind of fear, right? That there's a kind of nightmare scenario that's possible here because so many people depend on work in order to survive. If a lot of jobs disappear, given the way our world is structured right now, given the way the economy is structured, for most people, that would turn out to be a disaster or a nightmare rather than a beautiful dream. And that's why a lot of people say who kind of Get into this idea and think about it. They start to become proponents of universal basic income. Now you can encounter that across like any popular media, any newspaper today. Well, I've had articles about automation fear, trying to evaluate what's really going on. Um, but there's also a number of social theorists who've taken on these claims and transformed them into an entire kind of empirical and political um, perspective on the world of work. So. Um, the most famous book to come out was probably uh, The Second Machine Age and also The Rise of the Robots mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the 2010s. But then from there, you know, many other people took this on. Um, I was probably one of the earliest people to read Andrew Yang's book, The War on Normal People, which he wrote before he became a, um, a US uh, contender for the US presidency. So uh, you'll see this um, perspective being taken up by Uh, economists and social scientists, by uh, trade union leaders or former trade union leaders like Andy Stern, by um, former presidents like Barack Obama talked about it and his advisors. Um, And really just across what I find so interesting about this discourse is that it's really, you can find people across the political spectrum from Aaron Bastani, you know, on the left talking about, and um, Novara Media talking about fully automated luxury communism, all the way through you know, the center and even the far right, where you have people like Charles Murray, who's a very famous um, in America for being a racist, for having written this horrible book called The Bell Curve. He's one of the big advocates of UBI in the US and talks about automation as well. So you really have everyone across the political spectrum uh, talking
2: about this idea. Yeah. So they're basically saying the machines are coming they're taking over our jobs and whether you are a, a, a tech optimist or a pessimist, um, they, they, they all basically believe the same thing, the same narrative. And you are saying in your book, they're just plain wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. uh, I'm saying that they're wrong because um,
0: I I say, first of all, look, they're totally, they're right about one thing. They're right that there's a major problem of finding jobs for people. I mean, you know, across all of these different Um, Western societies, as well as in Japan, as well as across and and South Korea, as well as across the world, there are so many people who need work and have trouble finding it. And we see that in rising economic inequality and higher levels of unemployment and underemployment, um, in uh, falling uh, wage shares of income, which correspond to like a a rise in profits and a reduction in wages uh, for workers or the share of income that goes to wages. So we see this big trend that people are having trouble finding work. It's just that um, the automation story isn't the correct explanation of why that's happening. And in short, um, what I say is that basically, if it were the case that robots were taking all of the jobs in the way that the automation theorists say, then what we would expect to see is rising labor productivity levels. And that may be confusing to people because they think, well, why would why would we see you know, workers producing more per hour if workers are being replaced by machines? And that's kind of a misunderstanding of what the statistics show. The statistics are just a measure of how much stuff, how much volume of stuff is produced per hour or per worker or whatever. It doesn't it doesn't try to account what for what is specifically added by workers. It's just a broad measure of output per hour. And so as workers are being replaced by machines, we would expect the remaining workers to appear to be producing ever more and ever more quickly. And we just don't see that. In fact, what we see instead is a dramatic slowdown in rates of productivity growth. So it's just the opposite of what The automation theorists are expecting. Uh, So, the reason why I say the reason why um, there's a low demand for labor, in spite of the absence of this productivity speed up, is just that the economy itself has been growing at an ever slower pace. The real problem that we face is not an acceleration of technology, but a deceleration of economic growth, so called ongoing economic stagnation. And that problem has meant not that jobs are being erased at a faster pace than ever before It's that jobs aren't really being created at as fast a pace before, as before just because the economy is growing more and more slowly
1: last year you wrote an article in the guardian with the title why uber's business model is doomed in which you state that uber and lyft exist largely as the embodiments of wall street funded bets on automation could you give some more examples how this rhetoric inflicts damage to the real world
0: Yeah. I mean, so these ideas about automation, they're not just in the media. They're also part of Silicon Valley, um, claims that are being made to financial markets and to investors about the future. And I think they're also funding. My sense is that there's just a huge amount of funds going into, um, sort of boosterism around AI and technology and, uh, Around ideas about you know what policies do we need to put in place to make these um, automation and AI technologies uh, safe and reliable, I think a lot of uh, the funding for that is coming from Silicon Valley trying to promote this idea and gain funding um, for their investments and for their businesses like Businesses like Uber, uh, as you mentioned, and Amazon. And I think that these companies are really hiding um, really poor labor practices that they're sort of justifying by saying, look, these workers, we don't need to really employ them. We don't need to give them benefits because we're only temporarily employing them. We don't have any long term intentions to uh, create jobs for them. And this is just, you know, as long as they do that.
2: Because Aaron, they want to in in the long run be uh, fully automated. Uh, yeah. Amazon wants to deliver their packages with drones. Uber wants to drive with not longer using using drivers but self-driving cars. Is that why they no longer need the will need the people in the long run? That's
0: the idea, I think. yeah. And so that idea that they'll no longer need people in the long run um, justifies current practices of treating workers yeah. very poorly. And they see any efforts, I mean, um, uh, companies like DoorDash and, um, and Uber uh, and Postmates spent a huge amount of money winning this um, campaign uh, around Prop 22 in California. To prevent uh, their workers from being treated as real employees. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the result is that a lot of these workers are being treated very badly. Um, And if those technologies never are realized, like if it takes a lot longer to get automated warehouses and automated uh, delivery in, you know, complex urban areas and so on then those workers are just going to continue to face those very bad conditions for a very long time. And that's that's what I think is going to happen unless um, really big political changes take place. And again, I also think that you know the very same kinds of discourses, when politicians grab hold of these ideas about automation, they become less interested in improving the conditions of workers in these different companies and more focused on these kind of grand ideas about um, smart cities and tech-enhanced cities, and so on, that actually are tending to increase the the power of these mega um, digital corporations. Yeah,
2: because even the politicians you talk about uh, would say this is just a temporarily thing. Never mind the poor conditions; uh, it will be over in five years, and then we will live in a seamless, smoothless, fantastic technological utopia.
0: Yeah, if only. But (laughs) I think it's very unlikely that that'll be the case. And it it should be said, you know, a lot of the work that I've done is really about how things looked in the past and what happened in previous times when people said this was the case. Um, You know, a lot of the claims about automation and AI uh, were made in the 2010s. That was supposed to be the decade in the aftermath of the global financial crisis that we were told that all of these technologies were going to be coming online in fact now that the 2010s are over we can look back and see it was the decade that had the worst productivity statistics of any decade since the post-war uh period when they started collecting the data it was the decade that had the worst uh invest big business investment in you know um in new plant equipment and uh so on so it was a it was a it was a really low um low investment environment. Businesses weren't actually, you know, there weren't big changes for them to invest in. They're actually very concerned about Uh, an uncertain business climate. And so this decade that was supposed to be the start of this brilliant transformation was like the worst decade for economic growth um, that we've seen in a really long time. And that's why I think it's unlikely that um, that'll happen. In recent, um, let me just say as well that in in recent months, I've been really impressed by the work of Gary Marcus, who wrote a book called um, Rebooting AI that goes into some more of the detail of part of the story I didn't really get to talk about very much in my book, the technical limitations of current AI technologies. Um, and I think that you know, Marcus's work would be a great kind of um, supplement or addition for people interested in what I've written, because he really shows why machine learning and deep learning and neural networks are just not really producing the kinds of complex thinking that um, we were hoping that they would be able to. We thought the limits of our current AI technologies were really about limits of processing power, and as processing power improved, all of these technologies would get better at making guesses and and making decisions, but it hasn't really worked out that way because these uh, new AI technologies, they don't really produce thinking per se. They just produce very complex statistical guesswork, and it turns out that there's real technological limits in how far we can go down that road.
1: And can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what are the maybe also historic explanations for worsening economic stagnation since uh, in what you what you describe in the book since the 1970s? What 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 is causing the economy to stagnate and to slow down? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the big
0: open questions and you know I I take a certain stand on that in my book but I just want to point out for your listeners that it's a big debate right and you know that should really we we still don't know why that's happening uh, exactly so um, one story which which I think only really applies to wealthy countries is a story that says look you know, economies just mature over time. They just say, look, as people get richer, they stop spending money on high productivity type activities in manufacturing, and they start to spend more money on services. And so services have lower productivity. That transition just over the long term tends to reduce the potential growth rate of the economy uh, as we transition to services. The problem is that that story it really only makes sense for the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, what we've seen is that poorer countries, middle-income countries and low-income countries have gone through the same sorts of transitions as rich countries at a much earlier point in their development. And this was a process that was has been identified by development economists for about 10 years or so. It was recently popularized in the work of Harvard economist Danny Roderick, who called it uh, premature deindustrialization. So what we're seeing is that it's not just countries in the global north that are slowing down. It's also countries in the global south that are slowing down. And as I've started to indicate um, in this literature, the really big question is about industry, because it turns out that industry, industrial development, you know, um, manufacturing, producing, goods like cars and computers and all of that stuff, that turns out to be the really fast-paced growth sector of the economy. Um, and the question is, why has growth slowed down in that sector? So one explanation would be the demand one I started to talk about, but that only applies to the rich countries. So what would be a story that could apply to the whole world? In my account, uh, building on the work of um, uh, uh, economist and historian Robert Brenner, Uh, is to say that what's really going on is um, industrial overcapacity, basically what's happened. And people kind of know this in a way. They know that globalization hasn't been associated just with like a beautiful gains from trade and everyone specializing and producing different things and everyone kind of working together. What they know is that globalization has been associated with a kind of um, really intense competitive environment as more and more countries are trying to produce the very same kinds of goods. And that experience of more and more countries producing the same kinds of goods, that is economically the experience of a glut, of overproduction, of um, redundancies of technologies and technological capacities. And what we've seen basically is that as more and more countries around the world have gotten in on industrial development and have tried. And actually, the situation is much worse in agriculture. And agriculture overproduction is even more extreme. So all these poorer countries have had to try to make their way into global industrial markets that have become ever more oversupplied. And as that's happened, it's depressed industrial growth rates for all countries, Those countries like China that have been able to grow quickly in a generally slow growing or stagnant global industrial uh, market have done so mostly by taking markets, by outcompeting other producers, especially in countries like Brazil, Mexico and South Africa, and um, making their deindustrialization much worse. So my explanation is really centered in that account of global industrial overcapacity, uh, which I say killed the industrial growth engine. And the fact that services really have not been able to replace industry as a growth engine. Services tend to have much slower productivity growth. And because productivity growth is the main component, or one of the very main components of uh, overall economic growth, we've seen an overall slowdown um, with this transition.
1: I had a question about Rotterdam. I mean, um, if you look at the labor market in the harbor here in Rotterdam, you do see that technological innovations and processes of robotization are actually uh, and literally replacing jobs. Um, Here it does seem in a way that technological advancements is having some sort of impact on employment levels is it is or or is something else going on here can you can you maybe not tell us a more about rotterdam but about sort of the general processes or do that fe- are going feel free on? to tell us more about rotterdam <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well i mean you know one of the main so the way i see it is that there are um at, in the long history of capitalist development, you have entrepreneurs who are always on the lookout for ways to mechanize different kinds of production processes. That It turns out mechanization is just one of the main uh, kind of techniques that we have for increasing labor productivity over the long term. And over this long 250-year era of industrial development that we've seen, there are certain industries that have been real laggards in terms of being able to mechanize them. One actually is agriculture, which it was very difficult to mechanize until the 1940s when you know, things like motorized tractors and um, new kinds of petrochemical technologies and fertilizer suddenly took agriculture, which had been a laggard industry in terms of productivity and made it into one of the global leaders and the global green industrial revolution, which is really in many ways people say a brown revolution because it's really about all this chemical fertilizer has just you know depressed prices in agriculture resulted in this massive global agricultural exit that's obviously not what's happening in rotterdam but in rotterdam you see another example of a long time technological laggard industry that suddenly became a leader and that's obviously in the field of um, sort of warehouse shipping and logistics, right? So for a long time, you just needed to employ a ton of people on the docks. And in fact, dock labor historically was one of the main things that people would do when they couldn't find other jobs. It's like showing up on the waterfront. If you had no work, you just showed up and you just hoped to be picked. And a lot of the early studies of precarious labor our studies of dock labor for that reason. Exactly. Well, as I'm sure you know, in the 1970s especially, we see this containerization revolution taking place. A lot of it having to do with the Vietnam War and industrial military supply chains. Um, and containerization just tears open that industry and totally converts it from being a ha- high labor demand industry to a very technologically advanced and largely automated field. And there are other examples like that that happen, right? And we probably will see more examples like that in um, warehouse work, for example. Another field which used to be very labor intensive and now looks more like a factory, right? Mm -hmm. Any field where this the, where this change, this breakthrough of mechanization has happened, we've seen it go uh, to look more and more industrialized in character.
2: Yeah. So, so how is this not mm-hmm. uh, not an example of the machines coming and taking over the the low income jobs? Oh yeah, it totally is, mm-hmm. and and
0: that is happening all the time that's just a that's just a constant of capitalism right so that's the that is like the main thing that if you're an automation theorist you can point to things like that and say look at this look at these jobs that are being mechanized um, the question is when we look at those examples and we try to add them all up to look at the overall changes that are taking place in society and what you'll see is that you know those examples like uh the Rotterdam waterfront, are becoming much less common, actually, over time. It's like, over time, we aren't seeing faster productivity growth as more and more things look like the waterfront. We're actually seeing across all of the OECD countries, um, I'm sure including the Netherlands, a kind of long-term decade-by-decade slowdown in productivity growth rates. Because most people are working in fields like you know, education, healthcare, business services, um, retail services, and entertainment, and all of these kinds of services, where productivity growth rates are just really, really, really low, um, and those kind of jobs. Even with these new technologies coming online, they're just not really transforming in the way that the waterfront is uh, in Rotterdam. So it's not that there aren't examples of things like that. That's totally part of the story. The point is that those things have always been happening. And in the past, the economy grew quickly enough that it created jobs for all the people whose jobs were being gotten rid of. The The point is that today... Things like the the transformation like containerization that unfolded already really in the, you know, 80s and 90s. Um, Those kind of transformations are happening less frequently. And yet there's even more of a problem of creating jobs for people just because the economy has been growing so slowly. And in fact, what we see in many places is that... um, people are more and more stuck in the jobs that they have rather than changing jobs frequently. Frequent job changes is something that actually happens more in a fast-growing economy than in a slow-growing one like the one that we have.
2: In the book, you discuss a couple of things we might be able to do to get to a more equal and just economy. Among those are the universal basic income, for example. Uh, We could talk about the minimum wage, you are you're critical about the the basic income. Could you explain why this is and what we should turn to then? Hmm. So uh, we could
0: talk about both of those ideas, right? Um, they're in a way they're they're possibly related but different. So universal basic income is the one that is most frequently associated with the automation uh, discourse. So people who think that machines are taking over say, look, we, we should um, implement a universal basic income. And there's something, there's a few reasons why I think that that uh, solution appeals to people. And, and I think it's worth saying that the, the reasons why people turn to UBI are generally very good. First of all, UBI suggests, look, um, you know, the idea of paying everyone every month a certain amount of money just for being around, just for being human beings, it implies something really like a message of solidarity And also a message about what we should do with our wealth. Like, we're so rich now in the high income countries that we should be able to just say to people, look, you know, no one should be poor. Anyone who's living in poverty, just give them enough money to raise them out of poverty. Um, It's a solution that really uh, matters a lot, especially in a country like the United States, where... So many of our welfare programs are means tested. Like, if you're poor, the state says you have to prove that you're poor. You have to give us all of this documentation and show that you have never had an encounter with the law. Show what a good person you are in order to be able to obtain this very necessary means of survival. And removing the red tape and the bureaucracy and just saying, like, if you're poor, you just get this money. You don't have to worry about it. You can be. More secure. It makes so much sense as a as a proposal in a lot of ways. Um, the there's a few issues with why I think it's unlikely to solve the main problem, and that's just that um, the, for the automation people the sto- the the reason why they want to implement UBI is so important to the story because what they think is happening is that we're producing more and more stuff with fewer and fewer workers. It would imply a kind of like immense economic boom was taking place that like potentially the the production all the problems of production have been solved we could just produce almost limitlessly
2: and we're making only, so you know, much money that, that everyone mm-hmm. can be can join the party everyone can be rich
0: yeah everyone could be rich it's just a matter of giving them money and then everyone will be right and that's i think that's really appealing but what i'm saying is that that's not what's happening right what's really happening is that economies are stagnating they're growing more slowly. And that historically has meant that countries face uh, economies and governments face these fiscal constraints. And what we've seen over the past 40 years is not spending more and more on welfare programs. It's that welfare programs have been marked by austerity, the transition to workfare, trying to reduce benefits. Um, and in my view, uh, as beautiful as the UBI story sounds in some ways, it won't change those trends. UBI will be likely to be implemented, if at all, at a low level. And instead of rising, it will face constant political um, critiques that it, should, that it should fall to, to kind of reduce um, bloated state spending in the context of a slow-growing economy. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, those same problems, I think, affect things like minimum uh, wages as well. So any of the solutions that try to just say, we're going to give a little bit more to workers, those are all really good proposals. And of course, we should do that. Of course, we should have minimum wage laws. Of course, workers should be more organized and have uh, more representation like unions Um, But all of the solutions in a slow-growing economy, they won't really deliver the goods. Um, They won't really deliver security and freedom to people in the way that their proponents promise.
2: If you were asked to give practical advice to, for example, the mayor of Rotterdam or the prime minister of the Netherlands to mention just one slow-growing economy, what would it be? Well you know that's a, a practical advice
0: is an interesting question so I think that in a way um, maybe advice I would give that I was I was a little bit less ready to give in my in my book when I wrote it, but the times are changing so quickly right is uh, I would say that you know the government of Netherlands quite in contrast to what it's been doing um, for the past few years or decade or more. Uh, should work with other governments to generate a massive public spending spree to try to um, to turn the tide on climate change, and that that would really have to be a global transition with um, not not a giveaway to private corporations, but really a massive um, public spending to transform the global. Um, Energy mix and to try to stop us from careening into environmental disaster, but that would just be the first of all. No country can any longer do stuff like that on its own. It's only possible working with many other countries in order to achieve a result like that. Now, that's just I think anyone should know that's just the first order of business, right? Is to is to try to stop a much worse uh, climate catastrophe from coming that will make the COVID crisis look like you know, just a little um, taste, right? So, but within that environment, I think it'd be really important to make a large number of changes in the way the economy is run. And the most important ones, I would say, would just be to um, reduce and share the work that people do. So instead of trying to use this public investment to create as many jobs as possible for people, it would be to use this environment to really reduce the amount of work people do and um, to uh, share as well the work that has to be done among more people. I don't think this is as big a problem in the Netherlands, maybe, I don't know. But just in, in the US, we have a major problem just around childcare um, and all of the kind of work that, um, it's still the case that women are largely responsible for this. Private uh, childcare is incredibly expensive, so it's often falling on aunts and grandmothers to do that work. Um, and so taking all of that kind of work and, again, transforming and redistributing it, um, giving workers a lot more say in their work, using public investments to transform working conditions and the conditions in our cities to make them more enjoyable and sustainable in their organization. And then sort of not just saying to people, look, you know, you don't have to work as much, creating a kind of environment in which people can um Can transform what they do with their free time on the basis of the security that they would gain from sharing work, providing people what they need um, without exception, uh, universally providing services and to some extent also basic income, and then creating a world of human flourishing. I think we have socially everything that we would need to achieve those results already. We don't need to wait for automation technologies to do it. What we need to do is dramatically transform our society. Um, And in particular, I say we need to transform how investment works in our society. We need a much more public and democratized system for controlling investment. Right now, a very small number of people um, have a huge say in the kinds of investment decisions that are made that affect how secure people are, what kind of work they have, the shape of the world that we live in, and those people have done an incredibly bad job because we now face this immense climate crisis that we should have already been solving for some time. Um, and so taking over, transforming and democratizing investment, that's really the key, I would say, uh, transition that has to take place.
2: Yeah, it sounds great, but I'm, 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 not, I'm just not sure if that's who we are. I think. I think <laughs> in the I Netherlands, think I, in particular. <laughs> no, no, I'm, uh, in general, I think you're, you're a you're an, an naive, idealistic uh, optimist. I don't know, don't you? Isn't, aren't we just sort of self absorbed, egocentric, dysfunctional mammals trying to do something good once in a while, but most of the time failing it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I totally think that that's how we are. <laughs> but still, <laughs> you, do be- you, you, do believe, you do believe in some kind of, uh, also, forgive me for saying it, also sort of utopia, right? Or
0: Well, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from utopian traditions. Um, the ones that I find more interesting are ones that don't rely on a kind of beautiful human nature to tell their story and are much more about freeing people to kind of do what they want or to be lazy or, you know, whatever that case may be. I'll just say, you know, one thing that um, I'll say in favor of a potentially more capable humanity than the one that we believe we we have today. Um, is just it, It's just to say that, uh, you know, the real question maybe about human nature is like, will people work if they have um, you know, their needs. No met. direct, like no, no direct incentive. Rent, that's the question is the question of incentives. Right. And um, what I'll say is, I is that, you know, what economists have seen is that there are, there are already many people who don't really worry about their security um, as part of their lives. Like take, for example, computer programmers or tenured professors or, you know, there's certain people who already make enough money and feel secure enough about their ability to get a job that they don't worry about, um, about whether they can make, a whether they'll be able to make a living. And what economists find is that those people past a certain point, they want a fair wage, but they're not really motivated by money in the same way that people are who experience insecurity all the time. And the result of that is that businesses have had to find different ways of motivating those workers who are no longer really motivated in the same way by money. And what they find is that when people have a lot of autonomy in their work, like they, they have a lot of freedom to decide the kind of work that they do. And when they um, have skills that they use in their daily lives, that they see the different projects they're involved in as like honing and you know, improving their skills, and when they think that their work has a social purpose, that they are intrinsically motivated to work. And that's why you know, people talk about Google and Silicon Valley places having you know, ping pong tables and all of this stuff as ways to keep people at work. But the real way that they keep people at work is by trying to convince them that the work they're doing is good And that um, giving them a lot of freedom in how they carry it out. And on the one hand, I would say um, that can just be extended to way more people. Like there's way more people, I think, who would be willing to work even in conditions of post scarcity and do good jobs if they felt like the work that they did, first of all, if they thought the work was fairly distributed, if they had a lot of freedom in how they worked with maybe their co workers or by themselves and how they carried it out, and if they felt like that work had a social purpose. And I think that Mm. as we, continue to create uh, an economy that requires more complex cognitive work, it requires workers to be really engaged in what they do, that this will be the main determinant of how well societies do, is how how much their workers are intrinsically motivated. And in the end, capitalist economies have real limits in how much of that kind of motivation they can give people. Look at what's happening today in Silicon Valley. Tech workers who used to believe that Google, the company they worked for, was, you know, the most um, utopian company around. But, uh, you know, Google, which was supposed to be this really um, utopian private company, turns out to be a company that's doing all this kind of evil in the world. And now the tech workers in Silicon Valley, no longer believing that they're doing good through their work, are starting to organize themselves, form unions, and fight back. Against their employers, so that's those are the kind of tensions where I think you can you can you can see a a possible better humanity in the ways that you know making work, making people, giving people security and freedom, could actually be a fundamental component of what we need to do uh, in order to have the kind of economy uh, that we already have and especially that we could have.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. You are listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sireman Dias, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen... and myself, Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plak Studio... and the graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the creative industries NL and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast... And check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.